Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. In this episode, we're going to go into an area of football history that we seldom have traveled on this podcast, and that is women's football, women's professional football, and it's in a book by author Russ Crawford, as he tells us all about the history of women's football in America and beyond, coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And we have a great episode today. We're going to peer back in that portal of football history and look at uh, an interesting subject that we've touched on a little bit before. We're going to get into some women's uh, American football playing and uh, a gentleman that's wrote the book on it uh, titled Women's American Football Breaking Barriers on and Off the Field. His name is author Russ Crawford. Uh, Russ, welcome to the Pigpen. Thank you, Darren. Good to be here. Well, we're, we're sure glad to have you. This is a, a very interesting title, and uh, you know we'll we'll get into the, the ins and outs of that of your book here in a little bit and talk about it. But first, we'd like to learn just a little bit more about you, uh, Russ. You know, what, what's your your football background, your your fandom story, and how you got to the point of writing a book? Well, I played uh, football at uh, Ainsworth High School in Ainsworth, Nebraska, uh, all four years, well, six years, including junior high. And then I went off to college, uh, got my teaching degree eventually, and I taught um, uh, history and social studies in Wabay, South Dakota, and I also coached football there, not very successfully. Uh, I went off to Iowa to teach Spanish, of all things, after that. Uh, my, my one loss record wasn't good enough to get another social studies job. And I, I helped coach the freshmen there, but I also coached wrestling in Iowa, which is a, a treat in itself. Uh, That's like the wrestling capital of the world it is. in Iowa. Yeah, there's some towns oh. that have, um, uh, instead of, you know, every town has a basketball court for kids to play on, but there's some towns in Iowa that have wrestling mats strung up or, or laid out for kids to come shoot takedowns instead of shoot hoops. <laughs> so anyway, I went back on my PhD at the University of Nebraska. I worked with Ben Rader, who's a sport historian. He's written a book on baseball. It's probably his most famous one, Baseball America's Game. And so I started doing sport history with him because, you know, it seemed like a an interesting topic. And so I'm probably the football is my number one sport. It's about the only thing I watch anymore. And so 
once I got my dissertation published, I started looking around for other stories to write about. And uh, I eventually married a French woman. And, and in visiting France the first time, I met a friend of hers who showed me his football helmet. That led me to writing about football in France. And while I was researching that, I found the sparkles, the Saint-Georges, uh, uh, let's see, I'm going to mess up the name, <clears throat> Villeneuve-Saint-Georges uh, is, is where they're from, uh, the first women's team in France. A little while later, I, uh, Jean-Marc, the, the friend, and I went to uh, the final of the women's challenge in France and in, um, uh, let's see, uh, Anier-sur-Seine, which is a northern suburb of Paris. And so we watched the final game there, and I decided that that would be an interesting topic to write about. And so when I started researching, it's as if the blinders fell off my eyes, and I started seeing women's football everywhere. And so I figured that'd be you know, quite the the topic to write about. And so I think I started that in maybe 2016, and did several years of research, went to several football games in various places, including Canada. Uh, let's see, I've been in France and here in the United States. And this last summer I was in Vanta, um, Finland, watching the U.S. women's national team win their fourth gold medal there. And so that's, you know, basically the process I went through to write this book. Wow, very very interesting. So it's a, a worldwide sport, which always uh, sort of catches me by surprise a little bit. Because of course, you know, as soon as you leave uh, North America, you know, football is an entirely different sport, <laughs> what we call <laughs> soccer. And so it's it's great, and it's uh, that the sport is spreading. Uh, you know, I've had uh, listeners and readers contact me from uh, you know the subcontinent of India and you know Europe and uh, you know Australia of course which is uh, re really kind of cool that uh, American football is all these places and they're enjoying it you know as much as we do here in the states so that's a really great thing yeah. yeah it is and of course here in the United States if you ask the, the usual person on the street if they know about women's football they've never heard of it it's sort of the same way when you talk about American football in, in Europe or any place else in the world, not many people have heard of it. So around the world and even here in the United States, at least women's football is a, a pretty strong subculture, but not many people know about it, which is one of the reasons I decided to write on that. I didn't want to write about something, you know, maybe, Oh, I don't know the NFL, AFL merger or something like that. There that's probably been done to death. I wanted to write about something no one else had ever heard of or not many people had heard of. Yeah. Okay. That's that, great. Do you want to have those niche, unique niches to, to write about and get that subtopics? Now, bunch of, let's talk a little bit about what women's football is. Now you're talking, you know, a worldwide uh, athletic event here. Now, is there different brands of, of women's football or, you know, with different rules or is it all pretty much the same? Well, here in the United States, we play the the usual, much like the males play, the 11 on 11, uh, full pad, all that sort of thing. Of course, there's flag football around the world as well. But in countries where there are not as many women who know the game, who want to play, 
a lot of times, for instance, Britain, I think they started off six on six, full pads, full contact, but smaller teams. Uh, as they've played international competition, they're, the British American Football Association, or BAFA, is working on raising it to 11 on 11s. The Australians, I think, start off maybe seven on seven. Now they're working towards 11 on 11. So in many countries, there weren't that many women, so they had to do smaller teams. Um, you know, and of course, here in the United States, we have six on six. We've got, I coached in South Dakota, I coached nine on nine, which is really weird for me getting used to. Uh, and in six on six, seven on seven is, you know, it's still football. You're still hitting, uh, but you don't get the same full field experience, I suppose. And that's hurt women and in, uh, international women in competition. Okay. So, so your, your book is mainly about uh, full contact football, you know, despite, you know, how many uh, participants are on each team? You have a variety there, but it's it's full contact helmet, shoulder pads, block and tackling that, that we're used to seeing on uh, television on Saturdays and Sundays. Correct. And my book focuses okay. mo mostly on the United States. Where do, where does the history start with women's football in the United 1896. States? Eighteen ninety six. Really? Okay. Sort of a drunken brawl was what it turned into. Apparently, some some college students some uh, male and female college students were i assume drinking uh and <laughs> no that wouldn't happen at college would it <laughs> yeah, well, i've heard things uh, but anyway in the morning they went out to a park and lined out a football field and uh, the women started playing and they had no idea of the rules apparently according to the newspaper there's only one newspaper article on that uh, but they took to it very well. They, of course, they all rushed to the ball and hit each other and even went into the stands a little bit. And, you know, they had to untangle them and get them back onto the field. But they were having a, a great time, uh, apparently. But a police captain came in and shut down the game because he was worried about the safety of the players and the possibility of a riot, I think. So, well, I mean, when you're, you're talking the football, that sounds like football that era. I mean, this is 1896. That's 10 years before the forward pass was incorporated into our modern game. And, uh, you know, 1912 before it was even really used like we would recognize mm -hmm. it. So that, that's, that's great. So they were, they were taking each other down and, uh, you know, mass uh, formation. It yeah. sounds like, or just yeah. a, a wild scrumble <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. There you a, a scrumble. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> like that word okay so so where how did it evolve from from that uh drunken uh college uh event to to where you know we start getting closer to what you're seeing what you witnessed uh going to these games the past few years well women have been playing ever since 1896 i i have a friend uh yeah, let's see, katie taylor who's an academic in great britain who's writing about uh, the history of women playing football and coaching football, basically up to around Title IX in the 1970s. And she's uncovered a, a huge number of women playing. Of course, you might be familiar with powder puff games. Um, that started off in Cavour, South the Cavour High School in 
Huron, South Dakota, I think, in the 1920s. Um, and there were a few women's uh, girls football teams who even beat boys football teams in those days. Uh, hmm. Well, in the 30s and 40s, there are, are newsreels you can find of the Los Angeles Amazons playing uh, tackle football, um, probably a, the Coliseum. Uh, but in the 1920s in Toledo, there were a couple of promoters who put together two teams of women and started playing barnstorming games wherever they could find a crowd. Apparently, they were making some money at it, but they got some pushback. And from a, a pretty high source, uh, Lou Henry Hoover, who was Herbert Hoover's wife, the first lady of the United States, wrote a letter to them and said, you're exploiting these women. You should stop. Uh, I don't think it was that she objected to, to women playing football, but more to men making money off of it. That was the big thing. And maybe create because it was creating almost like a novelty act instead of a sporting event. Maybe that Possibly. too. That's true. Yeah. And so with that, uh, they started having a hard time uh, finding places to hold games. And eventually they just went away. Uh, they couldn't find a place to play, couldn't make any money. So they disbanded their team. And so an argument can be made. Of course, the NFL started in Ohio and you can make an argument for women's professional football or semi-professional at least starting in Ohio as well. And then after the twenties, you know, again, women played here and there. They had teams. Some women played on boys teams, uh, but it really wasn't until the 1970s, late sixties, early seventies, when a guy named Sid Friedman decided to recreate, he was from Cleveland and decided to recreate that barnstorming uh, idea. <clears throat> and so he created, uh, let's see, the Cleveland uh, Brewers maybe, and the Detroit, um, I'm forgetting the name, teams from Cleveland and Detroit, eventually the Toledo Troopers. And that morphed into the uh, women's professional football league. And boy, I, if I mess up some of these acronyms, anybody listening, I apologize. Uh, but there have been so many leagues and so many acronyms that sometimes my amps, my absent minded professor syndrome kicks in. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Friedman started these teams that uh, later included the Toledo Troopers. And the Troopers dominated football in the 1970s. They won seven straight championships, won or had a piece of seven straight championships. And as you said, you've talked to Mr. Gwennon and uh, his book, uh, you talked about his book, um, We Are the Troopers. And so they were the right. probably one of the top women's, well, they were the, one of the top women's football teams of all time. And if you want to throw it open to professional teams, their success is right up there with, you know, some of the men. Um, so does that bring up any questions? Yeah. I'll pause for breath. <laughs> no, no, that's uh, like you said, Mr. Uh, Guinan talked quite a bit about, about that and uh, you know, his, his theory and a lot of actual proof that he, they might be better statistically than any 
men's professional football team ever put yeah. together and is more dominant than any other. So that, that's, uh, that's quite the thing to say about the Toledo Troopers. Yeah. That's for sure. I'm glad to hear you pronounce that. I've been pronouncing it uh, incorrectly. Guinan. Yeah, I believe it's okay. Guinan. <laughs> Oops. So. <laughs> All right. So I'm sure he'll, he'll like the, the publicity. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> that's a great book. I reviewed it for American uh, sport in American history, uh, a blog fantastic yeah it sure is sure is okay okay so we have you know we're up into the professionals now has there ever been an attempt to have um maybe a collegiate uh sport of women's football well here in the last you know of three or four years the nfl and the naia have collaborated to start women's flag football not so far tackle football though other than, you know, the, the powder puff games at various universities. So we do have flag football that's starting to get some traction at the collegiate level. And of course, it's been big in uh, Florida for, oh, 15 or 20 years, but not tackle well, football. I think we'll, we'll even see uh, professional players playing in a few weeks uh, for the Pro well, Bowl. <laughs> you might see them. I, I don't think I will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably won't either. But, uh, well, <laughs> we'll it's see. been a long time we'll since see I watched Pro Bowl. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I hear you. <laughs> Story for a different there day. There you possibly. go. Uh, <laughs> all right, so so we have some. We have uh, you know flag football coming up, maybe in the collegiate ranks. That'd be a great thing. Uh, now, did I hear rumors that there might possibly be some Olympic events? I've, I know they've been toying with some new. Uh, sports and I heard possibly flag football might be one of those and even regular contact football well at the last world games this summer in uh, Birmingham Alabama uh, I went to that and and watched Mexico defeat the United States in women's flag football there were teams from Italy uh, France uh, Brazil United States of course Oh, uh, Panama, and probably some others that I'm forgetting. But that's the first time that flag football ever appeared in the World Games. And so that's sort of seen as a stepping stone to the Olympic Games. Right. Okay. So that's that's great for women's football. For, it's great for all football yeah. that uh, is spreading like that. And that's, one of the reasons the really International cool. Federation of American Football started hosting the Women's World Championships of Tackle Football was because, of course, they want football in the Olympic Games. They want their sport to be out there, to be seen in the Olympics. And, of course, if you're, they already had men's teams at that point. But if you're going to be in the Olympics, you need to have both men's and women's teams. And uh, one of the things, I suppose, that makes football a little bit tough for the Olympics is that it's an American-dominated sport. Uh, although in flag football, the United States, I think, won the last two world championships before this world games and when Mexico beat them. So they hadn't been all that dominated, dominant. And so that might give flag football a, a, a leg up. Yeah, well, if you, if you look at other uh, North American sports of spread, you know, between hockey and baseball and basketball, you know, that, that bodes well for football if they can, you know, even become half the successes that some of those other sports have because they're very popular around the world, you know, of course, behind uh, 
soccer, yeah. but they, uh, you know, they're still gr- a growing sport there too. So that's, that's interesting. Okay. So did the, so we're, we, you talked us all the way up into the 1970s. Now, where, where has uh, women's uh, football and women's professional football been since the seventies, since the days of the troopers or where are we at in today's world, I guess. From the seventies, um, women's professional, if you will, football, uh, existed till the troopers and the Oklahoma city dolls, uh, stopped playing. And then there were a few teams, the Toledo Spitfires, for instance, that won a championship in a successor league. But from the mid eighties to the late nineties, there wasn't any organized women's professional or semi-professional football again in, let's see, 1999, a couple of promoters, began another barnstorming effort with the Minnesota Vixen and the Lake Michigan Minks. Actually, at that time, they were the Minnesota Vixens. Now they're the Vixen. Uh, So they started barnstorming there. Got a documentary made about them that was on PBS. uh, True Hearted Vixens, I think it was. Um, And so out of that... They also played a game against the New York Sharks, which at the time was a flag football team, but they gave them the equipment and they practiced for a while. If you want to hear more about the Sharks, there's a pretty good book written by Andra Douglas uh, called Black and Blue, Love, Sports, and the Art of Empowerment. She'd probably be a good one to talk about. Uh, she started yeah, the New uh, York Sharks. Hmm, okay. Yeah, well, we'll need to, to look her up and see if we can arrange something. That's, that's yeah. great. Thank you for, for, for plugging her. I'm sure she appreciates yeah. that, too. And so, anyway, they played that one game outside of their barnstorming teams, and that dovetailed into a new league. And beats me what the name of it was. I think the National Women's Football League. Uh, When some of the women thought the promoters, the original promoters, weren't doing what they should be doing, they went off and formed their own leagues. And so in the early 2000s, leagues started sprouting out of the ground, you know, like mushrooms after a rainstorm. Uh, Everybody, owners, league officials, thought they had a better better idea of how to, to run things. And... That's the thing with women's football is with the NFL, teams came and went in the early days. There was a lot of chaos, but there was money to be made. And so that kept a, a core group of owners together. With women's football, since there's very little money to be made, the women have to pay to play. Uh, basically, there have been a few times when maybe women got $25 or $50, $50 a game for playing but that wasn't very common. But since there's no overriding financial concerns, leagues, you know, mushroom and expand and contract, expand and contract. And so there was a period there when there were maybe five or six leagues operating at the same time. Out of that sort of chaos, the Independence Women's Football League uh, became the the most powerful team in the United States league in the United States. And in 2010 for the first uh, women's world championship that IFAF sponsored, 
they pretty much all all of the players that played on Team USA came from the IWFL. Uh, eventually, uh, some of the owners of some teams decided they had a better idea, and uh, some broke away to form the Women's Football Alliance. Right about the same time, um, the women's football that many people are most familiar with began when Mitch Mortaza created the Lingerie Football League, which gave some competition and some irritation to the women who play in full uniform. Because, you know, when they tell people, oh, I play women's football, they say, in lingerie? And, you know, so that's a pretty irritating thing. So that was competition for the full kitted football uh, that was being played across the country. Over time, the Independent Women's Football League eventually folded and the Women's Football Alliance became the, the dominant league in the United States. Although in the aftermath of the IWFL, uh, four teams, the, let's see, the uh, Texas Elite Spartans, the Utah Falcons, the San Diego Surge, and the Seattle Majestics broke away and eventually formed the Women's National Football Conference, broke off from the IWFL that was started by Odessa O.J. Jenkins, who was a fantastic football player and, and is doing pretty well at business, getting endorsement deals from people like um, Adidas. And the Women's Football Alliance is is still the the premier league in the United States. They have somewhere around 60 teams playing out of there, including, well, the four Ohio teams. Uh, there were four teams in Ohio before the pandemic, uh, the Toledo uh, Reign, the Cleveland Fusion, the Cincinnati Sizzle, once owned by Icky Woods, and the um, uh, Columbus Comets. Now, since the pandemic, the Comets have gone, but the Columbus Chaos has replaced them. I'm not sure about the fusion. Uh, the Cincinnati Sizzle folded, but now there's a new team called the Cincinnati Cougars. And I'm not sure what's happening with Toledo. So, um, you're from Pittsburgh, or you're a fan of Pittsburgh. Have you ever heard of the Pittsburgh Passion? Yes, I have. Aha! Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Actually, we we used to have a team. I'm I'm in Erie, so I'm I'm about a hundred miles north of Pittsburgh. And Erie used to have a team probably about 15, 20 years ago, and they had some games against the Pittsburgh Passion. Ah. So I don't know if it's the same same team that the Pittsburgh Passion is today, but. Sure, there's got to be some affiliation. Probably uh, partially owned by the late Franco Harris, uh, the Passion yeah. War. Right. It seems like, well, Pittsburgh is a football crazy town. And more so than any other town I've been to where I ask people, you ever heard of whatever the local team is, more people from Pittsburgh have heard of the Passion than any other team uh, that I've asked people about. I. I make the habit of asking Uber drivers and cab drivers and that sort of anybody I talk to, you know, I'm here for a football game. You ever hear of the, the Utah Falcons, for instance? And they say, no, what's that? Uh, but, <laughs> but I had a student from Pittsburgh a few years back 
<clears throat> I asked her if she'd ever heard of the passion she had and now you. So that's pretty good uh, batting average for the passion. Yeah, I, I, but uh, I've cheated though. That's because they came here to play some games, and I, being a football fan, you know, whole, all of Western Pennsylvania is pretty football crazy. That's uh, true. You know, professional basketball can't make it here, but uh, unless you're a movie with Julius Irving in it, but uh, <laughs> but the uh, but football and and hockey, those are some some uh, big time sports here, especially football. So, and we're we're much very similar in Pittsburgh. That and Cleveland and Buffalo are very similar mm. that way too. So. Yeah. So, so, okay. So, wow. Yeah, that's quite a, a what a hundred and forty year history of women's football. That's uh quite in a deep uh, historic thing. It's you know almost as as long as tenured as the men's football because you know if you if you count the eighteen sixty nine game between Princeton and Rutgers, mm-hmm. which uh, many don't because it's more of a soccer game, but early 1880s on up when Walter Camp changed the rules of mm-hmm. uh, uh, rugby and, and and soccer to be American football. That's, uh, you know, that's only missing about 15 years of history. So that's, that's tremendous. I, that's a lot uh, long, longer tenured than I, than I thought that was for women's football. Well, back in the, the thirties, I believe it was though the um, Frankfurt professional football team had, they had a halftime game of women, sort of a, another one of these sideshow type games. So you're talking like the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. Yellow Jackets, okay. yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, they oh. had a halftime game at one point, and there was – I've read accounts that some other NFL teams had women's games as well, but I've never been able to run those down. Now, in the, the hmm. more modern era, uh, when the New York Sharks uh, started playing – uh, they actually got to play uh, at halftime at, in a New York-Dallas game, I think. Uh, hmm. So I think they were probably the first women's team to actually play uh, before a, a crowd of uh, men's fans, you know, uh, the NFL fans. Huh. And there have been some instances, oh, let's see, three years ago, I think it was, at the Pro Bowl. Uh, two teams from the Utah Girls Football League, which is an also in Salt, Salt Lake City, <clears throat> got to play an exhibition during the halftime of the Pro Bowl. And so no there are starting to become more, well, there's an interest out there for girls to play football at the high school level and even the grade school level which started up in Canada with Manit- in Manitoba and then about the same time over in New Brunswick. Then it worked its way down south to Utah and for a while in Indianapolis, well, Indiana. So there have been some girls' leagues, and every once in a while you hear there's going to be one in Texas or one in Atlanta, an all-girls tackle football league. The idea being that it's safer for girls to play against other girls than it is for boys. You know, there are all sorts of girls who, who can play peewee football with the boys because like uh, Sam Gordon, you might remember her from the 100th anniversary NFL commercial where they had the wedding cake and then the ball flew out. She was mm-hmm. the girl at the end that held up the ball and then sidestepped whoever it was. Um, she had a viral video 
of her running around and through all of her little all the little boys in this peewee league in salt lake city and so out of that uh, her father and chris sacco started the utah girls football league here in the united states and so interesting yeah and they're still going strong well hey that's so when you can get into the the younger people getting in, interested that's going to carry over to a certain percentage of them that are going to want to play and continue to play on up and hopefully you know these professional leagues will have a little bit more merit i mean look at what the wnba is today and where women's professional basketball was you know 20 years ago it's uh quite a, a ju- great jump and is becoming more mainstream year by year so hopefully with football for women that'll do the same thing and uh folks like yourself that are writing about it and getting the uh, persona out there of it and making the, the average fan aware of it. That's, that's all good things for the sport and uh, it's helping to preserve football history. And that's what we love to hear here at pigskin dispatch. So Russ, uh, why don't you, uh, before we let you go here, why don't we get you uh, to tell you the full name of your book and where folks can purchase a copy. Women's American football colon breaking barriers on and off the field uh, published by the university of Nebraska press. It is available from them and from Amazon, and I haven't looked at any other places. Good reason they sell books or Barnes and Noble or something like that. But hey, that's uh, great stuff. And uh, so, University of Nebraska Press, Amazon, and uh, some of your normal uh, avenues for books—you know, Barnes and Noble and probably Books a Million and things like mm. that. So. Very, very interesting. A uh, great topic, uh, great history. We, we appreciate you sharing uh, uh, some of the, this view into women's football and the history of it and uh, enlightening us to some, and especially your, your host here on some uh, great aspects of that history. And we really appreciate you, sir. And we wish you luck with the book. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for having me on your podcast. And um, yeah, well, it's, it's a, it was a fascinating story. It was very interesting to, research and write, uh, you know, attending football games. Uh, I got the chance to be inside the Saints practice facility when the women's world games, this is USA football's attempt to, to bring up the talent level of women from outside of the U S. Um, so I got to talk to women there from around the world and, you know, I've seen some pretty good, big, pretty good games, uh, good football and talk to some, pretty tough women sometimes i you know sort of backed up with my my phone a little bit uh, in case they you know thought i was had a football or something it was going to hit me (laughs) (laughs) so it's been a blast talking to these women and watching these games and finding what little i could that's been written about them uh that's it's great work that you do sir and we appreciate you and uh appreciate what these women are doing to to play the game that they love just like uh, men are doing so uh russ crawford author of women's american football we appreciate you sir and and thank you very much all right thank you peeking up at the clock the time's running down we're going to go into victory formation take a knee and let this baby run out thanks for joining us we'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast 
we invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, as well as Jersey Dispatch, on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.